Those of you that know me very well know that I am a very positive person. But you know what? I'm human. I have been disappointed and I have had lack of trust in organizations. So here's a few stories. Deb, you shouldn't have sent those emails. You shouldn't have communicated that way. Okay, great. Um, feedback? What should I have done differently? Nothing. Silence. Deb, you shouldn't have said it that way at that meeting. Okay, great. Bring it on. Um, what should I have said differently? When should I have said it? Crickets. No feedback again. And finally, Deb, we love your work, but we no longer need your services. Okay, I'm a big girl. Um, what did I do well? What constructive feedback can you give me to bring forward to my next opportunity? And these are stories, mine as well as others, that happen time and time again that build lack of trust in individuals and organizations, a critical topic sometimes we don't talk about. My conversation with Richard Atherton breaks down the elements of trust and what we as individuals should be practicing to assure we build a strong foundation of trust. Let's listen. Right. So it always starts with the leader. So it always starts with who is the leader being? Because everybody takes their cue. I mean, we're all apes at the end. <laughs> you know, and we're all mammals. We're all acutely aware of our place in the social hierarchy. And we're constantly looking for cues as to how we should behave from the, you know, the natural leaders in the environment. So if the leader leaders aren't signaling trust, if they're not encouraging high trust actions, if they're not creating that environment and that context for everybody, then it's not possible to create a, a high trust environment. So I think that's very important place to start is the direction and the context that the most senior leader and those around him or her are signaling. Welcome to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. I'm Deb Coviello, and as the drop-in CEO, I drop into businesses and assume the CEO role to enhance the human element and increase the results they achieve. This podcast is about bringing you conversations with expert guests who have achieved their greatest results built on a strong foundation of purpose, values, and elevating people. If you're a business leader, entrepreneur, or even just getting started in business, Join us as we build the skills you need to achieve your goals. Hello, I am Deb Coviello, founder of Illumination Partners, and I want to thank you again for joining me on another episode of the Drop-In CEO podcast. I get to speak to amazing leaders week after week and share their insights with you. If you like this program, I ask if you could please subscribe to the podcast, rate, review, and share with others so we can continue to bring you great programming. And I'd also like to make you this offer, the CEO's Compass eight points to getting you back on track, my approach to helping leaders going through rapid change and elevating their teams. For more information about my consulting services, please reach out to me via dropinceo.com and let's continue the conversation. And now I'm honored to share the mic with my fantastic guest, Richard Atherton. Richard is a partner with First Human. He is passionate about helping leaders build great companies and he holds a mirror to individuals and to teams, and he passionately has them own what they need to change. 
He's been a consultant and a coach for more than 15 years. He's cut code, written industry articles, and designed change initiatives. And he has coached development on teams using lean and agile working methodologies, mentoring senior leaders, and managing major transformation. And probably most importantly, he's a proud father of twin boys and also a podcast host of Being Human. I cannot wait to bring this conversation to you. Welcome, Rich, to the show. Thank you for having me, Deb. It's an honor. It's all mine. And so I'm kind of, you're a podcast host, so am I. So I better make sure my questions bring out the best in you. I know you're looking at this and hoping that we have a great conversation for our listeners. The reason why I wanted to bring you on here is I think there's so many things in common that really resonate with both of us. I mean, we are all about helping leaders and their teams reach their highest potential. I can't wait to bring your story about the trust scaffold to our listeners. And you also love the media space and also an engineer. So let's just get to it. If you could share a little bit about yourself personally, your journey and how you've arrived at the work you're doing now. Yes, right. So I'm an engineer. My degree was in electronic engineering. So I learned to code when I was at college. I was also a thesp. I wrote comedy reviews, I acted in plays. So I guess I was always I always had this interest in both the arts and the sciences and I've always found expression in both. The first job I got out of college was I suppose thankfully because I was able to uh, feed myself with <laughs> programming. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I started programming in the financial industry and you know really most of my career has been either as a technician or helping others to shape, build companies, helping individual leaders, helping organizations. And I've had a few diversions. So I spent some time running a cabaret club in the West End of London, which uh, also included some circus acts. So I've also got experience putting shows together, producing cabaret shows, burlesque shows, circus shows. And I did that for a while. I was a talent agent for a while. (laughs) I also did stand-up comedy for a while. So I've had a few diversions along the way. But yeah, most of my career has been, I guess you could say, in corporate land. You know, if I could react to that, we talk about these things that are diversions and not part of what one would construe as a standard progression of one's career. Is it something that feeds your soul? I mean, is there a part of you that, yes, while you do go into organizations and help teams through their transformation, what is it about the arts that is so important to you? Well, I think I'm energized by creative projects. And I suppose if I look at it and I zoom all the way out, those periods where I've gone off and done highly artistic, you know, taken on highly artistic projects, it's probably been because I've not had enough of an opportunity to express those artistic parts of myself in whatever job I've found. So I've tended to sort of leap out and sort of find that opportunity outside of where I'm currently working. But I think as I've matured and I've gone in my career, I've I suppose found it easier and easier to synthesize the two and bring the two together so that I can express that part of me that's still an engineer and loves systems and technology and the part of me that loves being creative and artistic. And I suppose where I'm at right now is I do a lot of that artistic expression through the podcast. And to some extent, I'm bringing that to the work, you know, helping organizations change and leaders find themselves. So, so as well as always keeping an eye on like, what's the bigger picture? What's the system we're operating in? That's always of interest. You know, what I love about this is this is I now I'm remembering why I wanted to bring you on because I too, I am a biomedical engineer. I never actually practiced that, but I went into manufacturing. I love systems. I love solving problems. 
So I then went into quality, continuous improvement. I noticed on your CV, you have lean and agile. I've learned lean methodology to help organizations, but it's always been from a place of, I just want to help people. I don't want people to be going through chaos using our technical skills and finding creative solutions versus just following here's my eight-step approach to helping you with this particular problem. So I love the way that that's part of your DNA. But let's just move a little bit forward and tell us more about you going into the consultancy space, helping leaders and teams through transformation. And you talk about, and I really want to go there, the trust scaffolding. So tell us more about that. Well, this is a metaphor I've used to explain at least one of the ways I think that we can get the most out of our people in organizations and have organizations flourish. And it comes down to this central idea of trust. And then that's very easy to say, right? We should all trust each other. And then we'd, we'd all have better lives and we'd be more productive and so on. But then how do we really think through, okay, well, how do we take that goal, that ideal, and actually have it happen in organization. And that's this idea of trust scaffold. So what are the aspects of infrastructure that we need to put in place in order for us to build a high trust environment? So you break it down into three pillars. I'd love for you to go a little bit more into that because I think this is really the gem of what you bring to the table here because there are so many change methodologies, but I think you've really cut to the core around trust. So let's just talk a little bit more about your three pillars, please. Right. So it always starts with the leader. So it always starts with who is the leader being? Because everybody takes their cue. I mean, we're all apes at the end. (laughs) and We're all mammals. We're all acutely aware of our place in the social hierarchy. And we're constantly looking for cues as to how we should behave from the, you know, the natural leaders in the environment. So if the leader, leaders aren't signaling trust, if they're not encouraging high trust actions, if they're not creating that environment and that context for everybody, then it's not possible to create a a high trust environment. So I think that's very important place to start is the direction and the context that the most senior leader and those around him or her are signaling. That's number one. The second is transparency. Transparency and the willingness to share. So it's one thing to create an infrastructure where everybody can share their data and make that data available to everyone else in the organization. But do people feel safe enough to share their data, their information on such a platform? So that's a really important part of this. So have we built transparency? Do people feel safe to share across the organization? That's a huge part of building trust. And the final part here is demonstrating with action. So from a leadership perspective, we must demonstrate to others not just tell others that now we're going to value trust. We must demonstrate to those around us and create the stories around us that the leaders are genuinely committed to building high trust environments. And so that's extremely important for people to understand and leaders especially. So all of this sounds so logical. And I have been with people that are not the leaders of the organization, but maybe middle managers or emerging leaders. And so often we see organizations put out their core values. We have transparency, trust, and we are committed to these ideals in our organization. We spend a lot of time on the PowerPoints, getting people in meetings. And at the end of the day, while in the moment we may be excited about that change, it's not truly there. So I'm curious about 
how have you helped organizations maybe an example where they may have said they wanted to exude these values, but they're not committed or demonstrating it? Or how did you help a leader or an organization through this transformation? So you truly had an organization that no longer had those trust blockers, were transparent and truly committed to this kind of change. Right. And that's an important term you bring up. And that's part of what I talk about in this approach is trust blocker. So where are we right now, just within the DNA of the organization, not trusting people? Right. That's a good question for leaders to ask. And one example is of an organization I worked with. They had a, a technology department and they talked the talk about, you know, oh, yes, we, can, we trust our colleagues and we empower our colleagues and all the rest of it. But one of the middle managers I had a conversation with there said he literally had to get a form signed in order to buy a book. This organization had like a, a library, so he couldn't spend like 20 bucks without having sign off for it. So there's a trust blocker. This organization had them everywhere. And so a good way to systemically think about improving trust in your organization is finding these blockers and removing them. And another example that I worked with this organization on was with a product owner, let's call her Susan, who was running the, the division's main digital platform, the main revenue generating engine of this organization. And she was in the same boat. She didn't have permission to uh, to really approve any kind of spend whatsoever. And so the concrete step we took was to raise her approval limit to 150K. And this meant she was completely trusted to do all kinds of things that weren't available to her, like bring in technical experts to help improve a particular facet of the technical infrastructure, let's say, hire freelancers when she needed them. I don't know, spend on a team building session for the for the team. All of these options then became available to her in a way that hadn't been before. And it completely transformed that corner of the organization. And now the job of the leader is to take those stories, share them with the rest of the organization and encourage other leaders around themselves to find their own trust brokers and start removing them. You know, I was thinking as you were talking, sometimes you think trust is emotional, like, well, come on, trust me, I'm telling you the truth. And all of that stuff that's, you know, maybe in verbal words or in simply the emotion, but you kind of hit on something uh, from a budget perspective, from a, I don't know, micromanagement perspective, we put certain technical limitations on people in an organization, such as spending limits, and we may not even realize what that's doing. There may have been a purpose at one point to put rules and hierarchy and approvals in place, maybe when we were a smaller organization and risk averse. But when we think about, we never really reflect back on those systems and processes that we subject our people to. And then unintentionally, it builds a culture of distrust. So I'm almost wondering the work that you do, is it that you try to technically unravel the distrust in an organization, as well as working with the leadership mindset? Is that the work that your company does? Yeah, exactly. It's both. So it's like finding those things that have just grown up over time and have become habitual practices that people are just adhere to unthinkingly. Like the example of dumb approval limits, you know, you pay a fortune and then you subject them to these, you know, crazy processes to buy a book. And they will exist everywhere, especially in established organizations that, as you say, served a purpose at one point in time and and work on the mindset. And not just mindset, turning it into action, right? I'll give you another example. This isn't from my own consulting experience, but a guy who runs a company called The Happy Company Limited, right? And he's written a book called The Happiness Manifesto. And trust is a big part of his message. They were in financial difficulty. They knew they needed to recut their website. They offer training courses. And this guy 
he runs the company, right? And he refused to have anything to do with the build of this new website, which most of the revenue for the whole company was built around. Completely trusted the individual to build him one that he that would work or build the company one that would work. And he only saw the new design the night before it went live, at which point there was no hope of him making any substantial changes to it before it went live. Uh, he didn't like certain aspects of it. He let it go live anyway. And that is the kind of act I'm talking about. And and by the way, of course, this website did fine and it, they did a great job on it. But that's what I mean in terms of demonstrating it by action, right? Showing the rest of the organization that you're going to walk your talk. You know, I love the work that you're doing, but I also want to speak to another demographic of listeners. While we certainly need to work with the leaders at the top to demonstrate what trust looks like, the transparency, as well as the commitment in their actions, often there are middle managers in an organization or even emerging leaders that want to do great work. They want to work in an environment where there is trust, but maybe the senior leadership team has not embraced that. What advice can we give them, even though they may not be in the right environment, that they can start creating an environment of trust and maybe infiltrate the organization? Because so often I see them shaking their heads. They feel helpless to make a change. But what can maybe they do now to create the environment that they want to see? I think the first thing is to manage expectations. You know, I, I think this idea that I can build a subculture here and just it will by osmosis transform the rest of the organization. I do think that's false hope, right? I think if your top most leaders are not bought in to the same philosophy that you might have about how the organization might you just like forget that, right? You know, focus on what you can control within your domain. And there may be a great deal you can do within your team to create a flourishing example. In fact, there's a brilliant chapter of a book by an outfit called Corporate Rebels. For anybody's listening, you know, they've got a great blog and they've, they've also got a book out of a civil servant in Belgium. And I can't, I think it was the social security department, I believe, of the administration in one of the, maybe Brussels, one of the major Belgian cities. But this guy pretty much had full control of this department. So he had a kind of sealed unit and he completely transformed that department. And that's fine, right? So he changed that part of the world. He was never going to change you know, the Belgian civil service or Belgian government at large, but he made a big impact in that department. And basically the rest, and this is true of virtually all organizations, most of the time, as long as you meet your metrics, most people are just too busy to care about how you're doing it. So as long as you can perform or overperform in terms of what's expected of you, you can do a great deal within your current realm. You just brought out a really great point because this is what I write about in my book, The CEO's Compass, is that so often we only measure based on performance metrics because it's easy and you can grade people along a curve, whether you did or did not meet the expectation or above expectation. And I find that is short selling an organization. So I try to move people away from that in my book. But you talk about if you cannot control the entire organization and influence them, people that really care about building environments of trust can do it within their own microcosm. So think about what Richard has shared with you. What are those things that block trust? What are those things that are not transparent and how can you open it up? And how can you as an individual start demonstrating your commitment to building trust either in yourself, amongst team members or your departments? Because you never know, you may not be able to change this company, but you could be the leader that other people follow and change future companies. Yeah. And most importantly, you could change the people's lives who work you know, within your division or right now. 
That is so important. You know, people leave companies generally not because they hate the culture of the company at last, because they hate the boss. <laughs> yeah, that's the number one factor of people's satisfaction in the workplace. And the surveys have borne this out. It's their relationship with their boss. So if, if you're managing and leading people, you can make a massive impact. I'm going to ask another question, because when you have shared your testimonials, people are usually aware they want to go through a cultural change, but they want to find the right guides or people from companies like First Human to help them guide them on the transformation. But listening are also some CEOs of small and medium-sized companies to this program. Sometimes they are not aware that they have a problem. So what are some signals that can open the eyes of CEOs of some of these companies to realize they need to change and they have issues in their organization related to the trust scaffold. What are those signals or signs to open their eyes that maybe they do need to make a change? Well, I mean, it's almost a little cliche now, but the engagement, employee engagement, employee satisfaction, and don't necessarily think that just because you're like average, that's good. Because the averages right now, you know, in terms of businesses at large are awful, right? You know, most people are disengaged at work. So even if you're slightly better than the average, your company culture still probably sucks, right? <laughs> so yeah, I would start there. And one of the people we've had on the podcast has built this amazing culture for a digital marketing firm in the UK. And when they had the people come to do the culture surveys, you know, who survey lots of companies, the employees of this company were so engaged, they had to create a new category for the survey called super engaged for these people who felt like their life purposes were playing out inside the company. And they hadn't encountered this before. And she ended up writing a book called Super Engaged off the back of it. So I think that's going to be one indication. Another indication is just do people feel alive? Like when I went to visit this company, it's called PropellerNet, by the way, for anybody's interested to you know, get an understanding of it. You just walk down, people are buzzing, they're chatting, they're laughing. The feel of the place, like ask yourself honestly, when I walk around my organization, does this place feel alive? Am I feeling joy? You know, are people in love with what they're doing, right? And if you ask yourself that question honestly, you'll get a good indication of how close you are to an organization that has high trust. That's an amazing feeling. And I, too, in some of my consultancy work, I was asked by the senior leader to get this. You'll, you'll relate to this. Help the people see manufacturing improvements, leveraging lean methodology. Where can they see their waste in their processes? And I taught them lean methodology with their projects. And we changed the culture from one that was simply heads down, just get the metrics, ship the product and people not talking to each other. There were many, many silos. But by evolving the culture, getting them to work together on their lean and process improvements, I know walking down the hallway, Deb, let me show you this. Hey, can I show you that? Deb, I never realized the challenges my people had. And now look at the improvements they're making. That is the beginning of what an evolving culture looks like to your point, highly engaged it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah, that word beautiful is important, yeah. right? And uh, there's another guy who's written a book called Beautiful Business. Is your business beautiful? Is it a beautiful environment? Do you have beautiful interactions? Is this thing you're creating, you're leading, is it a work of beauty? That's an interesting question to ask. We got to save that one. Maybe there's a book in that somewhere. <laughs> so let's just talk. I mean, obviously, the company that you're working with, First Human, helping leaders 
get through that trust scaffolding and breakthrough results. But you also are the host of a podcast. And I would love for you to just tell me a little bit more about that podcast. What's the impact that you have or hope to make? Because I want people to listen to yours as well. That's how I found you. Right. So yes, being human, our mission there is bringing a broader, deeper conversation to the business world. One of the things that frustrates me when I go into businesses is we have this sort of Overton window, right? We have this range of acceptable things to talk about in a business world, right? And, and if you're in England, there's a whole range of things that normally get talked about in the pub, right? So you, you've got certain things you can talk about in the pub, and then there's the things you can talk about in business. So my mission really with the podcast is to say, let's smash open that window and talk about all of it right? Talk about what does it mean to have a beautiful business? Talk about childhood trauma. Talk about like, what does it mean to be embodied in the workplace, to feel every sinew and cell of your body as you move around leading and managing in your business? Like, talk about all of these things and talk about systems and lean and agile. And I mean, I just had a cybersecurity guy onto the podcast, bring it all right, the whole human experience, as it applies generally to the workplace, not always what we eat, I had a brilliant nutritionist, just a couple of guests back, that makes a difference. That's going to make a difference to how you show up as a manager or a leader or a teammate. That's the mission really, is to broaden this conversation, deepen this conversation that we have in our business context. You know, that's kind of inspiring. And I'm just going to kind of ask a rhetorical question. So why aren't we more colorful, beautiful, and more expressive in the workplace? Why do we have to keep it in the podcasting space? We should be having these broader, more colorful conversations. It can only build higher trust. What do you think? Yeah, I suspect there's no single answer for it. I think, you know, a lot of our management norms were developed in the industrial age, you know, and to some extent, it made sense to supplement our humanity in service of making the machines work, right? Because they were the main drivers of our productivity were the the furnaces, you know, if you go all the way back and the production lines and so on. So I think there's, to some extent, it's historical. I think some of it comes down to schooling, you know, our schools teach us to operate in a particular way, you know, we're quite playful and expressive as kids, you know, naturally, but then over time, we hit the school environment, and we're taught to suppress certain aspects of ourselves in different ways and, and maybe allow it out, you know, in the art class or or whatever it might be. So we don't tend to have school systems which allow us to express all parts of ourselves and, and join dots. I think that's part of it. Parenting, right? I think parenting, there's an element there. You know, we have a quite fixed hierarchies often in, in our family and deference to mom or dad or both is often an important part of being kids. So that's another aspect. I'm sure there are others, you know, but it's a great question to ponder. I love this because I too have been a victim of conformity and being a highly expressive young child, both in the arts and in communication. I was on a radio program early in my career. You know, it's unfortunate that we have to suppress who we are as a person and simply conform to the performance management for which we're graded on an annual basis. I think businesses need to embrace a little bit more open conversation, humanity, expressiveness. It makes for such a rich culture and we can do the beautiful work we're meant to do. I have a burning question for you because, again, you've got a vast background. You started out in electrical engineering curriculum, then go. you have obviously a passion for the arts, and now you're in an environment where you are a change agent. What was it along the way in your life that you realized you wanted to help organizations through change? Was it being in bad situations or seeking 
to move people out of a place of chaos? Is there something in you that drives you to this work? Yeah, well, I think, do you want the truth or do you want something beautiful? It can be the same. (laughs) To a large extent, you know, why do we want to go and change the world? For me, it's often been about some unmet need in my childhood. That's what I've been learning more and more over time and doing the deep work. What you think is some noble mission often turns out to be some neurotic drive that has its origin in some need that wasn't met as a child, right? And the example I love is, was it Tommy Hilfiger, you know, a a sort of a major um, tycoon, you know, in textiles world who ended up with like 10 houses. And why did he have 10 houses? Well, because he he was homeless when he was a kid. He never had a house as a kid, right? So, So I think sometimes this drive to change the world or to manifest something in the world does come from often a darker place. And and what I'm finding as a change agent, as I resolve some aspect of my childhood that I can now see has been the source of some neurotic drive, and that kind of dissolves, I'm like, okay, maybe I don't need to be quite so dogmatic about organizations being this way or leaders being that way. And it doesn't mean that I'm still not attracted to helping people change. I think what it does mean is that I tend to have a little bit more choice around well, do I place my energy here or here? And I can be a bit, a little bit self-aware in, in terms of, is this me trying to project how I want the world to be? Or am I really being in service of what's emerging or what could emerge in this individual or this organization? So I think that's you know a part of what drives me. And I will conclude with beautiful. And that is the work that we are both so passionate about to create some level of service or serenity for the people that come into our life. As we bring this to a close, are there any last thoughts that you want to share with our listeners? No, I don't think so. I think the conversation, it feels like you've allowed me to expand and express, which is great. Yeah, you've held the space wonderfully. So thank you. All right. Well, I take that as a compliment from a fellow podcast host. If people wanted to connect with your organization, First Human or yourself, how best to do that? The website is firsthuman.com and that's spelt out F-I-R-S-T, firsthuman.com. The podcast is just that slash podcast and you'll get to our Being Human podcast. And then if you want to contact me, it's Richard at First Human or I'm on LinkedIn. That's probably the best place to get me. I'm excited that we had this conversation. I've been watching your work for a while. I am happy to have shared the mic with you. I wish you continued success, Richard. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. I hope you are inspired by our conversation and can apply what you heard to your business or career goals. For more information about our consulting or coaching services, please visit my website, at dropinceo.com or visit our Drop-In CEO Facebook group to continue the conversation. Now go out, lead, inspire, and achieve your goals.